The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John. We find ourselves in chapter 12 tonight. The title of my sermon for you tonight is, We Want to See Jesus. And the backdrop of our setting here is the Mount of Olives and an event known as the Triumphal Entry of Jesus. And the story we're about to read is going to set in motion a series of events that will culminate in Jesus' death by the end of the week. You see, the religious leaders had an agenda. They wanted to arrest Jesus and they wanted to crucify him, but they wanted to wait until after the Passover to do this. However, the events of this particular day would force their hands and compel them to act sooner. You see, Jesus needed to be crucified on Passover, not prior to it or after it, but on the day of Passover. Why? Because he needed to fulfill all the types and the shadows that that feast portrays. Since Jesus is our Passover lamb whose blood is applied to the doorposts of our hearts so that the angel of death might pass over us. So, so Jesus is he's orchestrating the events to force the Pharisees' hands. Now, how did he do that? Well, that's what we're about to read about here in John chapter 12. Let's go ahead and begin reading there in verse 12. It says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Oh, and they said that last line there out of a, a sense of frustration. But isn't it beautiful? I mean, it's our prayer, would to God, that the whole world would go after Jesus. Amen. And so we, we are given here this picture of the arrival of the king. This is his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He is making his final appearance in the ancient city there at the temple. And as I mentioned a moment ago, this is going to set in motion a series of events that will lead to his execution on Friday. Now, there are several factors that cause this particular story to stand out from the rest of the gospel narrative, and I want to point those out to you briefly. Number one, this is unique amongst the stories we read about Jesus in the gospels because it's one of only a handful of stories that finds its way into all four gospels. Maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't. 
But you can agree with me when I say that whenever God says anything, it's really important. <laughs> it's worth paying attention to. Now, if he repeats himself, it's doubly important. But if he shares the same thing four times, then it's really, 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 really important. And since this story shows up in all four Gospels, there's something that God wants to communicate to us through it. The second thing that makes this event unique is that this marks the only time that Jesus ever orchestrated a public spectacle. If you've read through the Gospels, you know that typically when Jesus would heal someone, he would tell them, now, don't say anything. Keep it on the down low. And he was always trying to keep a low profile, probably so that he could continue to minister and move without being harassed and harangued by these huge crowds that followed him wherever he went. And he had a mission. But on this particular day, Jesus not only allowed the people to worship him and praise him, but he actually orchestrated and manipulated the day so that he ordained it for praise. In fact, at one point he said, hey, if these people were to be quiet, the very stones would cry out. So there was something about this particular day that it was set aside for praise and worship. A third factor that makes it unique is this was Lamb Selection Day. This was the day that every Jewish family would go out and they would select a lamb and they would bring it into their home where it would be watched and observed for the next handful of days to see if it was without spot or blemish because that was the only kind of lamb that you could offer in sacrifice. And so they would inspect their lamb and, and Jesus is presenting himself here to the nation as the Lamb of God, as John described him, who takes away the sins of the world. And so he's saying, inspect me, see that I'm without fault and without blame, without blemish. Isn't that what Pilate said about him? I find no fault in him. And so he's presenting himself to the nation in that way. Now, the atmosphere around Jerusalem at this time, it was always electrically charged with patriotic fervor. Why? Because during the Passover season, the Jews would remember how God had delivered them from bondage and slavery there in Egypt and from the hand of Pharaoh and how God did that by sending Moses and the plagues and delivering them with a mighty hand. And so it stirred within them these, these feelings of, oh, Lord, would you do it again? Every year they would rehearse that story, and it, it awakened within them this desire for God to send the Messiah to release them from the shackles of Rome, who was ruling over them and held them under a, an oppressive regime. But on this particular year, that patriotic fervor, it was like ratcheted up to 11. Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus was this radical rabbi from Nazareth who was turning the world upside down and everywhere he went he was bringing revolution and his name was on everyone's lips. He was, he was a wanted man by the religious elite. But the people loved him and they were wondering, is he going to show up? And then they heard one by one, Jesus is coming. Jesus is on his way. And so all the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who had converged there in Jerusalem at this time of year to celebrate the Passover, they all began to rush to the place where they heard Jesus was coming. And they, they kind of threw together an impromptu parade. 
And you can imagine these men and women grabbing palm branches off of the surrounding palm trees, and they begin to wave them. One person says, there he is, he's coming. And he started there at the, the peak of the Mount of Olives, which sits adjacent to the, the, the Temple Mount area. And it's a steep kind of mountain that goes down, and then it goes through the Kidron Valley, and then back up through the Eastern Gate. This is the path that Jesus would have taken. And all the people converged there, and they began to throw their coats on the ground. And the, the children were dancing, and the people were singing Hosanna, something special was happening. And the waving of the palm branches was a symbolic act. It hearkened all the way back to something that had happened a few hundred years earlier, when under the leadership of a guy named Judas Maccabeus, they were able to successfully drive out a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes and the, the Seleucid Empire, and they drove them out. And for a brief period, they were able to enjoy autonomy. And during that season, they adopted the palm branch as a patriotic symbol. So when they were waving palm branches, it wasn't just a fan hymn. No, it was like the equivalent of us taking an American flag. They were saying, you're our king. And the song they were singing, too, it dripped with patriotic zeal. It was a direct quote from Psalm 118. And if you're familiar with that psalm, it's a psalm that is a messianic psalm that talks all about how the Lord is going to come and how he will triumph over Israel's enemies and cut down her foes. The people were clearly voicing their desire for Jesus to release them from the, 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 the rebellion of Rome. And that's what they were hoping for when they cried out, Hosanna. It's a word that means save now. But notice how they followed that up with, blessed is the king, the king of Israel. You see, they were hoping for Jesus to assume the throne. That line doesn't appear in that psalm I mentioned earlier. It was a line that they added, and it shows what they were really interested in. And Jesus was a king. But he was a different kind of king, wasn't he? He had come to save them as they were crying out. But it was a different kind of saving, not in the way that they were looking for. They were looking for a political ruler. Jesus had come to save them from their sins. He was presenting himself as a king, but he was a different kind of king. You see, he was getting ready to inaugurate his kingdom, but it was a spiritual kingdom. It was a kingdom that was not of this world. And so, in the end, we know that the crowds who cheered Jesus on this day, they ended up jeering him and mocking him five days later and chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because he didn't meet their standards. He failed to live up to their expectations, and he never delivered what they wanted. And like so many today, they wanted Jesus, but they wanted him on their own terms. And when they found out that he had no interest in that and he had a different agenda, then they turned on him. And I want to draw this out, this, this idea that there are these two kingdoms, because I, I was reading about how at the same time that Jesus was making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jewish historians record for us how there was another procession that was happening almost simultaneously, and it presents us with a unique contrast. You see, while Jesus was making his way into Jerusalem from the east, at about that same time, Pilate 
the, the Roman governor of that area of Judea, he was making his entrance into the city of Jerusalem from the west. And it was typical at that time for the Roman governors to come into Jerusalem for the Jewish feasts. Why? Because they could stir up a lot of trouble. And so he would be there with the army to kind of squelch any uprisings that might uh, brew. So I want you to picture this contrast because I don't think a greater contrast could exist than the one that exists between Pilate's arrival and Jesus. Pilate comes in from the west. He's surrounded by an entourage. He's preceded by a cavalry. He's preceded by a legion of Roman soldiers with their helmets and the glint of the sun shining off of their shields and their swords. Meanwhile, Jesus is surrounded by peasants. While Pilate sits on a mighty stallion, Jesus sits on a humble donkey. While Pilate's entrance projects an image of Roman might and power, Jesus projects a posture of humility. And nothing communicated that humility more clearly or starkly than the means of transportation that he chose to ride in on, that little humble donkey. I mean, imagine the President of the United States showing up for his inaugural address and pulling up in like an old 70s Pinto or something like that. And he just hops out of that. No, no, no. That's what this was like. I mean, Jesus could not have picked a lowlier animal to ride on. So why did he do it? Well, a couple of reasons. John points to one here. He, he says that he was fulfilling an ancient prophecy. And it's fascinating because there are all these Old Testament prophecies where looking back, the disciples could see, oh, Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy. And, and this one, it, it was given 500 years before Jesus came. And it describes how when the Messiah comes, he will come lowly and riding on a donkey's colt. So that's one reason. But another reason Jesus comes on the donkey instead of the horse is because he wants to communicate to the people what he has come to bring. You see, in that culture and in that day, when a king approached a city, if he was riding on a donkey, it was a symbol of peace. And he was coming, extending the olive branch of peace. However, if he rode on a horse... That was an indication that he was coming to declare war and to subjugate his enemies. And so Jesus is extending this olive branch to his people and he's saying, I am your king, but I am the humble king who has come to bring peace. Of course, it's his shed blood that provides the peace between humanity and God. It tears down the wall of separation between us. But let's also remember that the same humble king who, in his first appearance, rode on the back of a lowly donkey, he's coming back again. And Revelation chapter 19 describes how when Jesus returns, how he's going to be seated on the back of a white horse. And the Bible describes how his eyes will burn with fire and his clothing will be dipped in blood and he will be accompanied by the armies of heaven. And out of his mouth, the Bible says, a sharp sword will strike down his enemies. This is our future. This is what's coming. 
This is what we have to look forward to. We're going to be with that army riding on those horses, declaring Jesus' victory over this world. But in his first coming, he comes in peace. And notice how in verse 16, John says, we didn't get all of this when it happened originally. Which, by the way, if you're making up a story, if that's what the gospel authors were doing and they were making this up, then it wouldn't have been wise for him to include sentences like, hey, we didn't know what was happening when it actually happened. It wasn't until afterwards that we were able to go back and, and then we understood. And, and for me, this is just one of those little marks of authenticity that validates the, the scriptures. And also, too, I love it because, you know, I think it's something I can relate to. I don't know about you. But so often in my life, it is only with hindsight that I can see God's plan clearly unfold. Does that make sense? I mean, they say hindsight is 20-20. You've heard that saying. And it's so true, in particular when it, be, when it pertains to matters of a spiritual nature. When we're going through something, we look around and we say, God, where are you? You've abandoned me. You've forsaken me. And it's only once we get to the other side that we're able to look back and say, oh, you were doing this, and you were working here, and you were orchestrating that, and you were positioning them, and God, you were there all along. And that's what John does in verse 16. Now, in verse 17, uh, I'm sorry, verse 20, rather, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. I love this. They brought these people to Jesus. Now, who were these Greeks among those that went up to worship? Well, that's all we know about them. And so we would probably categorize them as God-fearers. There's a whole subset of the, the populace that were Gentiles. They were Greeks, so they grew up in a pagan environment, but at some point in their life, they became disenfranchised with the, the, the gods of the, the Greek culture. And they came to believe in the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so now they are making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. But even that wasn't enough to satisfy them. And so maybe when they get to Jerusalem, they, they hear Jesus preach. Or perhaps they see him perform a miracle. Or maybe they were there at the, the, the Mount of Olives and they see him make his triumphal entry and they're thinking, who is this? Their interest is piqued and they decide, we've got to set up a meeting with this guy. And so that's exactly what they try to do. And they find Philip, who was evidently, you know, according to them, oh, okay, this guy's part of Jesus' circle. And so they approach Philip in all likelihood because he has a Greek name, a Greek-sounding name. And so they come to him and they say, we'd like to see Jesus. And by the way, I just love that sentence. Can I just zero in on that for a moment? We wish to see Jesus. That is the aim. That is the goal of what is happening here tonight. Every time we gather, the goal is that we would see Jesus. Somebody say amen. And I think this is something that every preacher would do well to remember. Good preachers know that our job, my job in this case, is to get you to Jesus as quickly as possible. You aren't here to see me, 
to hear me tell stories about my dog or pontificate on what I think about things or kind of hear me ramble on about this or that. No, no, no. We are here. We have gathered to see Jesus. And by the way, people go to churches for a lot of different reasons. And I just want to remind you that the main, the best reason to go to church is to see Jesus. He alone holds all the keys. He alone has all the answers. He has all the solutions. He holds all the breakthroughs. So God protect us from doing anything else other than fixing our eyes on you tonight. Amen? Amen. And that's what their request was. Amen. Lord, we would like to see Jesus. Well, Philip didn't know what to do with them. (laughs) Perhaps because they're Greek and Jesus' ministry was focused to the Jews. And so he's like, "Ah, I don't know, is this like kosher? And so he brings them to Andrew, another guy with a Greek name. And then for his part, I love what it says in verse 22. And Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. So Andrew knew exactly what to do with them. And this is really a hallmark of his ministry. And by the way, if you're not familiar with Andrew, he is one of my favorites. I even named my son Andrew. The name means manly, and he's, in my opinion, one of the unsung heroes of the New Testament. He's not flashy. He doesn't have a big speaking part in the Gospels. He doesn't play a starring role, and yet he is nonetheless a hero for a couple of reasons. Let me tell you why. Number one, Andrew is the very first follower of Jesus. He was the first disciple. Did you know that? Originally, he was a fisherman along with his brother Peter, and then he heard this guy John the Baptist preaching out in the deserts and the Judean wilderness, and he goes and he becomes a disciple of his, and then one day he hears John say, behold, that's the guy you guys need to be following. And so Andrew goes and he becomes a disciple of Jesus. So that makes him significant. Secondly, Andrew's the guy that introduced Peter to Jesus. Peter was Andrew's brother. And you can imagine what that must have been like growing up with Peter as your bigger brother. (laughs) I mean, he probably spent his entire life walking in the shadow of his big brother, Pete. But to his credit, Andrew didn't seem to mind. He, He wasn't bitter about that. And he didn't hold it against Peter. No, he was happy just introducing him to Jesus. And then the other thing that makes him truly significant is Andrew spent his life, he devoted his life to bringing people to Jesus. And every time he shows up and comes to the forefront or steps into the spotlight in the Gospels, he's always doing the same thing. He's bringing somebody else to Jesus. As I just mentioned, he's the one who brought his brother Peter to Jesus. And then there's that story in the Gospels where the, 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 the crowds were surrounding Jesus and, and they were hungry. And it was Andrew who went and found the boy with five loaves and two fish and he brought him to Jesus. So without Andrew, you don't have that miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And here he's the one who introduces these Greeks to Jesus. And we would learn so much by following his example. Listen to what Daniel says. This is Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. It's in your notes. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I love that. We tend to celebrate and fixate on people who are vocal, those who are outgoing, those who are loud and kind of upfront, 
But notice how in the kingdom of God, it's oftentimes those quiet saints who, like Andrew, just faithfully bring others to Jesus who are the real stars. They'll shine like the stars forever and ever. I love that phrase. I hope that God uses that to encourage someone in here today. Maybe you would say, I don't have you know, great speaking ability. I can't sing. I'm not going to get up on a stage. It's just not my personality. And you're happier serving quietly behind the scenes in the background than you would ever be standing on a stage. You're shy. And that's okay. You see, like Andrew, you can bring people to Jesus. You can invite them into this room where they can meet the Lord. And that's what Andrew did. In fact, if you follow his story, according to church tradition, After Jesus' resurrection, Andrew continued to bring people to Jesus. And he eventually carried the gospel with him all the way to, of all places, Greece. And he goes to Greece as a missionary. And he was successful there in leading many people to the Lord, including the wife of a high Roman official. Now, her husband was none too pleased about this. And he was so angry with Andrew that he had him arrested. And he was encouraged to recant his faith, which, of course, he refused to do. And so Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us how Andrew died. He was crucified on a cross. And when they came to crucify him, he said, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner of my Lord. Can you put me on a different style of cross? And so they they crucified him on an X-shaped cross, which came to be known as St. Andrew's cross. And he spent three days on that cross suffering before he died. And in that time, he was heard to be sharing his faith with everyone who passed by. Yes, Andrew is a hero of the faith, someone we should all model our lives after as he just quietly, faithfully, wholeheartedly gave himself to bringing people to Jesus. Now, They bring these Greeks to Jesus, and Jesus says to them in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So here Jesus has an audience with these men, we can presume. He speaks to them of the glory of the cross. Now, his his response is a bit curious, isn't it? I mean, he begins by saying, my hour has come. The hour for me, the Son of Man to be glorified, has finally come. By the way, that's a cue for us who've been journeying through the Gospel of John. Because up until this point, Jesus has continuously said, my hour has not yet come. When Mary asked him to get involved there at the wedding of Cana, that's what he said. And again, when his family encouraged him to make himself known to the world in Jerusalem at the feast, he said, my hour hasn't come. But now it finally has the hour for him to be glorified. And yet, notice what Jesus ties his glory to, the cross. Now, that's, that's unusual, to say the least. We would typically associate glory with someone's status being elevated. When someone gets a promotion, they're being glorified. However, when Jesus talks about being glorified, he ties it to his own death. 
So think about it. They say, we want to see Jesus. And his response is, if you really want to see me in all my glory, then you've got to see me through the lens of the cross. Because that is the supreme display of my glory. So we got to drill into this. What is Jesus talking about here? What does it mean that he is glorified as he is lifted up on the cross? Well, what do you think about when you think of a cross? I mean, it's, it's part of our vernacular. It's worked its way into our culture. And, and for some, it's, it's a beautiful piece of art. We associate it with religious services. For many, it's, it's a fashion accessory. Now, those in Jesus' day who heard him talking about the cross would have also been familiar with crucifixions. But of course, to them, it was a symbol of death. And it became Rome's favored method of execution. There were other means of executing criminals, but Rome seemed to prefer crucifixion because it proved to be an effective deterrent against rebellion. To die by crucifixion was, in their eyes, the very antithesis of glory. It was shameful. It was cursed. And yet, After Jesus dies on the cross, look at what has happened. The very meaning has changed from a symbol of death to a symbol of life. Why? Because it was there that he defeated Satan, sin, hell, and death. He conquered the grave. And so the cross is to all of us who believe in Jesus a sweet, sweet picture or metaphor of the life that we've inherited. Amen? He captured the impact that his death on the cross had through this metaphor that he paints for us of a single grain that gets planted in the ground. He says that seed, you have to bury it, and it essentially dies as the husk gives way, and the seed is birthed in the soil, and then the shoot comes through the earth, and the green shoot, and the light comes down from heaven, and then it produces its, 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 um, it, 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 it's multiplied, rather. And that's what Jesus' death on the cross accomplished. You see, through his one act, his atoning death, we all get life. You say, well, how is that fair? Well, it's like this. Through Adam's one act of sin, we all gotten the sentence of death placed on us. And so to Jesus acting as mankind's representative, he dies in our place. And through his one sacrificial death, we all get to share in his life. Amen? And so, verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And I I love these verses because in them we're given a window into the internal struggle, the wrestling that Jesus was going through as he grapples with everything that it will mean for him to secure salvation for humanity. The cross troubled him. And he's saying, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But no, this is why I have come. And this scene foreshadows for us that other scene in Gethsemane where Jesus will wrestle with the Father's will to the point of sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And in this instance, he's, he's, he's dead set on going to the cross, but he's still wrestling with it. Why? Well, it wasn't the physical pain that Jesus recoiled at. 
but rather it was the, the thought of being separated from his father, whom he had enjoyed and known sweet fellowship with and intimacy with for all of, eternal, for all of eternity past. And yet in those three hours where Jesus absorbed Six hours, rather, where he absorbed the sin of humanity and the sky turned dark. It was as though the father turned his back on his son. And so in his anguish, Jesus cries out, Father, glorify your name. And I love how the father instantly comes back and declares, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. God answered his son's prayer. By the way, this is the third time that God audibly answered the prayer of Jesus or spoke audibly to Jesus. The first time was at his baptism where he declared his love for his son and his affection for his son and and he declared his pride over his son. I'm proud of you. You're my son. I'm well pleased with you before he'd even begun his ministry. The second time the father speaks over his son is at the Mount of Transfiguration. And there he addresses Peter, James, and John. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. And here, now the third time that the father speaks, and he basically assures him, yes, son, you have glorified my name. You're doing wonderfully. And you will continue to glorify me. By the way, dads. Pay close attention to what the father speaks over the son in these instances, because it's a model for all of us. The father shows up at three critical points in Jesus' life, and he speaks words of, 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 of confidence and pleasure and love over the son. And we would do well to follow that example. But notice. After the father speaks over the son, verse 29, the crowd that was there heard it. Some said it thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. Isn't this interesting? The father speaks. Some hear the voice of the father, others hear thunder, and some hear the voice of an angel. Same event, three different experiences. What are we to make of that? Just that every time God speaks from heaven, Depending on how our ears are tuned, what you hear will be determined by how you hear it and how you're listening. It never ceases to amaze me how when we gather like this, we open the word of God and I can look out and I see your faces and I can, I'm a pretty good gauge of of what's happening in the room, the mood in the room. And some people are locked in and they're, they're just hearing God speak and their hearts are being touched. And someone, three people down in the same row is nodding off and they're just totally checked out. One person's hearing the voice of the Lord. One person's hearing thunder. Interesting. And so we need to ask, Lord, give us ears to hear what it is that you might be saying to your bride, the church this evening. Amen. Let's finish with verses 30 through 33. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. And now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, then I will draw all men to myself. Now, oftentimes we'll sing or preach about, we need to exalt Jesus. We need to lift him high, lift him up. And and that, that language will find its way into sermons and songs too. And I get why we do that. 
But it's telling that in verse 33, John tells us, Jesus said this to signify by what kind of death he would glorify God. You see, it is the cross when Jesus was lifted up there on Calvary. That is how he draws all men in the world and women to himself. And I'd like to close by giving you three ways that the cross draws us to Jesus. Number one. The cross draws the world to Jesus because that is where we see the love of God on full display. You see, God proved his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He demonstrates his love in all kinds of ways, but the supreme proof of his love is the cross. And so that is where we are drawn to Jesus. Secondly, I'm drawn to Jesus on the cross because that is not only where God's love is on full display, but secondly, that is where my sins get washed away. I love that old hymn that puts it so well. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we go to the cross over and over and over again. It's not just the starting point. It is the only point in the Christian life that matters. For there my sins were washed away through the crimson flow of Jesus' own blood. And finally, thirdly, I'm drawn to Jesus on the cross because that is where I find strength to face today. So the cross, it It shows me the love of God on full display. It's where my sins are washed away, and it's where I find strength to face the day. What do I mean? You and I, we don't have enough stamina. We don't have enough strength to carry out what Jesus tells us to do and to live the life that he calls us to live in this word. And I can be inspired by the words of Jesus. I can be moved by the methods and the principles that we read in Scripture, but I am powerless to live out those principles or to accomplish those goals or those standards that Jesus sets. And so it's an extremely frustrating way to go through life. If you just come to the Bible and look at it as a means of method, methodology of how to live a godly life. No, no, no. It's so much more than that. It is the very strength of Jesus inside of us that allows us to fulfill his commands and to live the life that he's called us to live. You see, it was at the cross that the head of the serpent was crushed. It was at the cross that sin's power has been broken. It was at the cross where death was trampled. And it is at the cross where I find strength to face the struggles and challenges of today. Why? Because the same power that was at work in Jesus when God raised him from the dead, that power now dwells and resides in each one of our hearts by faith. It's the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for tonight. And for this word, we've covered some ground. We've talked about how you came, but you're also coming. We've talked about what it means to hear your voice, Lord. And Lord, I pray that we would be those who have ears that are tuned and hearts that are soft. And Lord, I pray that we would see you high and lifted up and that we would go to the cross over and over and over again and we would never grow tired of finding our way back to the foot of the cross where we get to see your love for us on full display. We get to know once and for all that you love us. 
proved it when you went to the cross. Thank you, Lord, that the cross is also our strength. It's our, it's our bread. It's our sustenance. And, and so often, I received new strength when I come to the Lord's table and I eat the bread and I drink the cup and I remember the cross. I remember the price that was paid and it, it washes my sins away and it also infuses me with hope, grace, peace, and floods my heart with joy. It's the power of the Holy Spirit living within me. And Lord, thank you that we get to walk in that newness of life. We get to experience that joy. We get to know the hope of heaven, and it serves as an anchor for our soul, Lord. I thank you for this gathering of your people tonight. Lord, would you speak to their hearts? May they leave here built up and encouraged that you're coming again soon. And we pray and ask all of these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.